Now, we've talked before many times about how, how commonly we take a verse out of its context in Scripture and we use it as kind of a, a standalone tidbit of wisdom or some bit of positive thinking fluff. And in Psalm 46, we actually come across another one of those verses that, in my opinion, is often misunderstood and misused. And that's verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. You can find this verse embroidered on pillows and wall hangings. You can find it printed on greeting cards and even posted on the walls of some churches. I don't know. I didn't look. We were um, down at... First Baptist Church in Pana last weekend, my in-laws church, I was a member there for a couple of years back before Pauletta and I got married, and uh, they used to have on the, on the back you know, wall of the auditorium, front wall, of the, is it the front wall or the back wall? Back to me, but anyways, um, so it's the front wall, but they used to have up there, they used to have the words, just be still and know that I am God, from Psalm 46 and verse 10. And we find this verse everywhere. It's, it, it's one of those verses that's common, it's easy, we like it, it sounds very nice and comforting and encouraging. And it's almost always used in the sense of a reminder to relax and remember that God is still God even when things get tough. And there's nothing wrong with that sentiment. God is still God, no matter what happens in your life. And that theme is actually present in this psalm. So, it's not completely coming from out of nowhere. But I think what happens is we miss the real point of verse 10 if we take it out of the psalm and we try to use it on its own. And so what I'd like to do with you for a few minutes is I'd like to take the time to understand the message of the whole psalm and see how verse 10 fits into it. And more importantly, I want, to, I want us to identify the primary theme of the psalm and see how it fits together, the theme of the psalm is this, the Lord will exalt himself by demonstrating his faithfulness to his people. And as we look through Psalm 46, I think you're going to see this theme is developed throughout the psalm, and then it is delivered to us. The Lord will exalt himself. Very, very, very important that we understand that. The Lord will not exalt you. The Lord will not exalt me. The Lord will exalt himself by demonstrating his faithfulness to his people. And so let's read together Psalm 46. And uh, I think we can benefit by reading through these verses together. So why don't you read it aloud with me? And we've already read one passage of scripture, but this one actually fits very well with, with Isaiah chapter 12. So let's read it together, all 11 verses. It's up here on the screen, or you can read it in your Bible there. Let's begin in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, Salah, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. 
God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Salah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Salah. Now it's clear when we read the entire psalm that the primary point that we are supposed to take away from Psalm 46 is God is our refuge. Right? That's pretty obvious. It's supposed to be. It opens with that phrase. Right away at the very beginning, the opening word. God is our refuge. Again in verse 7 and in verse 11, we have that repeated in a refrain. That the God of Jacob is our refuge. If there's one phrase that should be in your mind as you go out from here today... It's God is our refuge. Or maybe make it more personal, God is my refuge. If you find this to be true and you find this to be trustworthy, then you will have benefited from your time here today. God is my refuge. And so I like to summarize the main concepts of Psalm 46 because it's a very visual psalm. Again, we talk about this. The psalms are poetry, and poetry is primarily a visual medium. Now you say, that doesn't make sense. Poetry is in words. How can poetry be a visual medium? The TV is a visual medium. Well, no, poetry is a visual medium. The whole purpose of the language of poetry is to create in your mind a picture. The poet writes what he writes so that when you read it, you see what he saw. That's the way poetry is supposed to work. And so there are some very vivid images here that you are supposed to see. And then I think we can make some application to ourselves. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. The sons of Korah just declare this to be true right there in the first verse. But here's the thing. In order for God to be your refuge, in order for him to be your place of safety, your place of protection, he must be able to withstand the challenges that constantly threaten to overwhelm you. If God is going to be your refuge, he has to be able to withstand the things you fear the most. Right? He has to be able to take them on and overcome them. He has to be greater than them. But what are those challenges? Well, there are three strophes here in this psalm. Okay? And each of them conveys one of these challenges, one of these fears, one of these threats 
that we often face. The first one in verses 1 through 3 is the threat of natural disaster. Notice what he says, verse 2. We will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Can you imagine what kind of traumatic natural disaster would have to take place for the mountains to be displaced and cast in the middle of the sea? We're talking about a major, major earthquake, a major, major movement of the earth. Now, I'm not, I don't think the psalmist is actually you know, picturing a literal earthquake here. He's using figurative language. He's talking about the most spectacular disaster you can imagine. right? The mountains were carried away and cast in the midst of the sea. And then look at verse 3. What happens when the mountains strike the sea? The waters roar and are troubled. Well, yeah, I would say so. If a mountain is cast into the midst of the sea... Picture a tidal wave. We've seen this recently, right, in our world. We've seen this where an earthquake happens uh, somewhere under the ocean and all of a sudden a massive wall of water is sent rushing at, at a high rate of speed toward the land. And when that water strikes the land, it is devastating, isn't it? I mean, a wall of water 100 feet high coming and just you know, 60, 75 miles an hour coming, crashing into a city, and it just wipes it off the face of the earth. It's unbelievable. We've seen these things happen. And that's what the psalmist is talking about here. This devastation of the earth, natural disaster. And of course, what does the psalmist say? We will not fear, even though those things happen. We will not fear if the earth quakes and the mountains are thrown into the sea and then a tidal wave carries death and destruction. These elemental forces of nature are among the most terrifying things that you and I face. And why is that? Why is it that the, the, the earthquake, the tornado, the hurricane, the volcano, why are these things so terrifying to us? What do you do to stop it? What can you do when all of a sudden nature itself seems to be working against you? Nature itself seems to be trying to destroy you because of some incredible disaster, these natural forces that are outside of our control and they are so much greater than us. We're completely helpless. You can't stop the wind that's going to blow your house down. You can't stop the waves that are going to overturn the boat. You can't prevent the earthquake. You can't stop the volcanic eruption. You can't stop the storm. And so we, as human beings, are completely helpless. We are at the mercy of the planet on which we live when it comes to these natural forces. We have no control. I know. There's people today that have the idea that we somehow have influence and control over these things. But the scriptures make it very clear, we do not. We cannot control them. What you need to understand 
And of course, what the psalmist is declaring so powerfully is this. God is greater than the forces of nature. God is greater than the forces of nature. He's the creator after all. And just as we have to bow down before the unstoppable and uncontrollable forces of nature, in that same way, those same elementary forces have to bow down before the voice of their maker. And of course, we have a specific example of this in Scripture, don't we? Jesus speaking to a storm, right? From the from the ship on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. Jesus speaking and saying, peace, be still. You notice that he said, be still. At verse 10 of this psalm, the psalmist says, God speaking says, be still. That's what God says to the forces of nature that threaten to overwhelm us and destroy us. God says, be still. And what do they do? They calm. <laughs> the wind stops and the waves are calm. This had a profound impact on Jesus' disciples because it was a demonstration of his power as the almighty creator. And so I would submit to you that you have nothing to fear from the forces of nature because they serve the will of God obediently. You see, but it seems like it's getting worse. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Not, it's not getting out of hand to God. He hasn't lost control of them. When Jesus speaks, the wind ceases, the waves are stilled. He's not out of control. And so we say with the psalmist, I will not fear. God controls those forces of nature. He is your refuge from the calamities of nature. Now, the second strophe reveals God's supreme power in a completely different realm. In verses 4 through 6, we see the threat of political unrest. We know about natural disasters. We see those around us. But we also know a little bit about political unrest. We see that around us too. Very recently, in fact, we see this in our own country much more so in other countries around the world, but still we see the threat of political unrest. It's interesting, verse 6 describes the chaos among the nations. The nations raged and the kingdoms were moved. That word moved, by the way, is the same word that's used to describe the shaking of the mountains in that opening strophe. The kingdoms were moved, the nations raged, there was upheaval and unrest. And the upheaval of human government continually threatens our peace and our security, doesn't it? Not just our government either, but governments all around the world. We live in a global society today. And unrest halfway across the world can have a huge impact on our safety and our security here. But I want you to notice the condition of the city of God, even while these nations are being moved. Look in verse 4. There's a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. 
she shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. Now, I think the image here in verse 4 is actually a continuation of the metaphor from verse 3. Verse 3, it was the mountains being cast into the sea and the seas bubbling up with tumult and turmoil. And, in, and, and there's an abruptness to it. In our, if you look in your Bible there in verse 4, you'll notice that the first two words of verse 4 are in our italics. That's because they were, they were added by the translators. They are not there in the original text. They're added to make it more smooth. But what it literally says, it talks about the, the waters roaring and being troubled, the, na- the mountains shaking with it, swelling. And then in verse 4, a river whose streams make glad the city of God. It's just this abrupt change. Well, what is it? Well, I think there's a reason for that. I think that what this is doing, I think this is the psalmist looking at the same thing but from two different perspectives, right? The mountains cast into the sea, the tumult of waters that are rushing over the land, there's a great devastation. But from another perspective, from the place where God dwells, this violent flood is actually a peaceful river that brings life and joy to God's people. And when the nations are thrown into turmoil and uncertainty reigns in the centers of political power, in verse 6, the city of God enjoys the presence of the Most High. By the way, that's what the tabernacle represents. It's mentioned here uh, in verse 4. But the tabernacle was the tent that Moses and the Israelites built when they were in the, the wilderness that they made. But the tabernacle was the place where God came to dwell with men, right? The tabernacle represented God's dwelling in the midst of his people. And so when it says here, the city of God and the tabernacle of the Most High, it's saying this is the place where God is. And so uh, there's, there's chaos and upheaval in the mountains and the oceans, and they're all in turmoil, and the nations are being moved. But in the city of God, in the tabernacle, in the place where he dwells, there's peace and there's joy among God's people. There's confidence, right? Confidence that that city will not be moved. We live in turbulent times. Nobody would deny that. But we also read in the scriptures that God is with his people. He is in their very midst. And so we have no reason to fear. Why? Because God is greater than human government. God is greater than human government. And in fact, in verse 6, we see a very vivid picture of what happens when all of the vaunted powers of human authority are confronted with the voice of God. Notice what it says at the end of verse 6. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. How significant are the boasts of human kings? The boasts of human leaders when God's voice sounds in the earth? Will it matter what they say? 
Will it matter what they boast? Will it matter what they claim? Will it matter the authority and the power and the influence that they exert? When God's voice sounds, the earth melts. We have demonstration after demonstration of this truth all throughout Scripture. Think of Pharaoh in Egypt being completely demoralized by the plagues that God sent throughout the land. Think of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon who was insane and driven from his palace for seven years exactly as God said would happen. Think of Haman, the wicked advisor to King Ahasuerus whose devious plan to destroy the Jews resulted not in the destruction of the Jews but in his own humiliation and death And the exaltation of Esther and Mordecai, two of the very Jews he sought to kill. When God speaks, the earth melts. And what then becomes of the power and the majesty of human kings? You need to know this. The Lord is your refuge from the dangers of political turmoil and uncertainty. Too many Christians today are paying too much attention to the headlines in fear of what's going on in our society and our world. And I'm not saying stick your head in the sand. I'm not saying, saying you can't pay attention to the news. But I'm saying you need to remember that the Lord is greater. The Lord is greater than the powers of political influence in our society. And I hope I hope that as you cast your ballot in the last election, you did so not in fear of what might happen if this doesn't turn out right. But I hope you cast a ballot in confidence, knowing that if the nations are moved, if the United States of America is shaken, the Lord is in the midst of his people. And his dwelling place will not be moved. By the way, I didn't even write this in my notes, but just for a freebie, when you think about this, there is a correlation. Old Testament, you have the tabernacle, which represented God's dwelling place with his people. In the New Testament, we don't have a tabernacle anymore. What do we have? No. The body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own to be bought with Christ, right? The Spirit of God dwells in you. God makes his dwelling place with men. Not in a tent in a city in the Middle East, but in the hearts of his people. There's a correlation between that. The book of Hebrews talks about that. The tabernacle was a temporary thing in the Old Testament to represent God's presence in his dwelling place, but now the temple of God is with men. And so when we talk about God dwelling in the midst of his people. It's not just that God is here in our midst when we're gathered together. That's true. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've been born again, he is dwelling in you. The Lord is your refuge. He dwells in you. And I think I might even have had that in here somewhere because I'm, now that I think about it, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right. Let's move to the third trophy. Verses 8 through 10, 
The psalmists present here God's supremacy in a third realm. This is the realm of military conquest. In this third strophe, we see the threat of violence and war. But this threat, too, is overcome by Almighty God. Notice verse 8 and verse 9. We see this description. God, uh, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong psalm. Uh, Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Look, God's actions here are very powerful, and we are invited to see for ourselves the tremendous works of the Lord the desolations and the destructions that he makes in the earth. But notice, this is not just random desolations. This is God going to battle against the armies and the military powers of this world. What you need to see here and understand is that God is not presented here as the great negotiator. He's not the great negotiator who makes peace through his Superior diplomacy. He's a mighty warrior. He goes out to do battle against his enemies and the enemies of his people. And what does he do? According to these verses, he utterly destroys their ability to make war. It's not just that he wins the battle, but he breaks apart their weapons and he burns their chariots. In other words... He so thoroughly defeats them that they no longer have the ability to fight. This is, by the way, how Scripture says peace will come on earth. We'd like to think that peace could come through diplomacy. If we could all just sit down together, we could all just just talk it out, we could understand our differences, we could somehow come to peace, right? How many times, I mean, I'm not that old, but in the last... Okay, let me, just, let me just put it this way. This will be safer. In your lifetime, did you think about the turmoil in the Middle East? How many times have you heard some politician get up and say, we're just going to sit down and we're going to talk about it and we're going to work it out. We'll find a diplomatic solution. We'll create peace. Yeah, listen, I'm not, I'm not opposed to that. I'm not opposed to us as human beings trying to find peaceful ways to resolve our differences. I, I don't favor war, Right? Anybody who's, I mean, you you have to be crazy to want war. But I'm not God. And we're making the most of what we have in a sinful and broken world where things don't work the way they're supposed to work. But here's what I do understand very, very clearly from Scripture. Scripture says that peace will not be ushered in by political manipulations or peace treaties. You can read Revelation chapter 19. And what you'll see is you'll see the Son of God riding on a white horse with an army of saints arrayed with him coming to a great battle where all the nations of the world have gathered their military forces against him. And what you will see if you read that passage is a sword that comes out of his mouth and slays them all. This is not peace through negotiation or diplomacy. The Lord will bring about peace. But he's not going to do it through education, 
through fostering understanding and partnerships, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to destroy not just the people who oppose him, but he's going to destroy their ability to oppose him. He is going to make an end of war because he is the great and mighty warrior who overcomes all of it. And so when we understand God and we understand the threat of violence and war, we need to see this, that God is greater than weapons of war. God is greater than these things. And again, Revelation 19 talks about the future. There's going to come a day when Jesus Christ is going to come to earth and make war with men. But it will be the greatest war and the largest war and the most destructive war that has ever happened on this earth. And it will be the war to end all wars. Literally. But the other thing that's incredible is in the pages of Scripture, we have other examples of this in the past. God has already demonstrated his ability here. Right? In fact, there's a lot of question and thought when you read about Psalm 46, people trying to figure out what is the historical setting of the psalm. And there's usually a couple of different places or three different ideas that that are kind of put out there. Some people suggest that it's uh, describing the the crossing of the Red Sea and how the armies of Egypt were destroyed by the hand of God in the Red Sea. Others think it refers to the time when Jehoshaphat and the Israelites were confronted with a massed army of the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites who came up against them. And the Bible tells us that that Jehoshaphat and the people of Israel never even went to battle. They arrayed themselves for battle, but they stood on the sidelines and they watched as God caused these three armies to turn on themselves and to kill themselves. And of course, then you have in 722 B.C. when Sennacherib led the Assyrian army into, into uh, Judah and, uh, Judea and came to approach the city of Jerusalem, spoke blasphemous words against the Lord. And, and Hezekiah and the people had no defense, and they cried out to God. And God said, just wait, and in the morning you'll see my deliverance. They woke up in the morning, they went out to where the Assyrian army had been arrayed, and they found 185,000 men dead on the battlefield. The Bible tells us that an angel from the Lord came down in one night and slew all those men. And Sennacherib and whatever remained of his army turned tail and fled back to Assyria. There's other examples, not necessarily settings for this psalm, but think of teenage boy David going out to battle against a Philistine warrior, Goliath, who was, by the way, a nine-foot-tall giant, and taking with him a, a sling and a stone, which was a weapon of war, but certainly not a sophisticated weapon, not to be comparable to the great armor and the sword and the spear that Goliath wielded, and yet God and his power slew Goliath by the hand of David. Or think Gideon and his little band of 300 men routing the entire Midianite army. Listen, over and over and over again in the pages of Scripture, what do we see? God is greater than the weapons of warfare. God can take the greatest army that mankind puts together and he can wipe it out. It's not a threat to him or to his people. Because God is the refuge, even from the greatest military powers. But all of these are just illustrations of the point. 
What is the psalmist trying to say? What is it? What is he saying? God is faithful to his people, right? But there's more than that. This is the point that I think we have to understand. God is seeking to glorify himself in all the earth. God is seeking to glorify himself. I think this is what Psalm 46 is really about. God's people are not the focus. I think what happens, if we're not careful, is we read a psalm like this, we read Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God, and it becomes about us. It becomes about our confidence in God, about our trust in God, about our ability to, to rest in God. But let's make it about Him, because that's what the psalm's really about. God is going to exalt Himself in the earth. From the very first word of the psalm, our attention is drawn not to us or our needs, but to God. He is our refuge. Refuge refers to external protection. But he's also our strength. And the word strength there in the first verse refers to internal power. This means that God is outside of us, sovereignly guarding and protecting us controlling circumstances, both of nature and of man's doing, to bring about his will and his purpose in our lives. Did you know that? God is always working outside of you and around you and your family and your neighbors and the road and the people around you and the weather and all the different things that are happening. All of these things are under God's control. He is the one who is always working in your circumstances. You know, I think about joy being in a car accident. God was working there to guard you and to protect you and keep you safe. That's God's doing. But, but he's not just outside, right? Because this also suggests that he's inside of us, inside of his people, giving power and strength in our weakness and upholding us in the midst of troubling circumstances. And again, the New Testament affirms this reality. God is not just dwelling in the middle of his people collectively. God is dwelling in our hearts. That's why the, the word Emmanuel is so important. And it's not used in this psalm, but it's echoed here. Can't you hear it? God with us, right? Emmanuel. That's what Jesus coming to earth meant. Not just that God would come down and become a man. That's true. But remember what Jesus said, I have to go. And when his disciples were saddened by that, he said, listen, it's better for you that I go. Why is it better for us today that God, that Jesus Christ is not still walking this earth? Because Jesus said, if I go, I will send the comforter to you. The comforter, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's better for you. Yeah, I can be here and I can do these things, but it's better for you if I go because the Spirit will come and He will guide you and He will guard you and He will live within you. Every believer, every Christian can say this. God is my refuge. He's outside of me working to protect me. But God is my strength. He's within me to give me power and uphold me in the midst of circumstances. put this all together, 
God is without and within our Savior. Right? And so if the Spirit of God lives within you, then you can truly say, I shall not be moved. But that's a pretty big if. Right? If the Spirit of God dwells in you, you can say, I shall not be moved. But if you don't have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, then you are not secure at all. Can you have any confidence that God will protect you from the chaotic powers of nature? No. And so what happens? Every storm and every disaster could be the end. And you'd have nothing to show for the life that you've lived. Every new political regime becomes a threat to your way of life, to your livelihood, to your freedoms, because they're used as tools to be manipulated by men and women in positions of power. And that's a frightening thing if God and His Spirit is not within you. Maybe the most frightening thing is to understand that if you do not know Him, if the Spirit of God is not dwelling in you, then when the Lord does battle against the forces of this world, you'll be found on the side of the enemy. You'll be found on the side of the enemy and you'll become a part of the desolations that are talked about in verses 8 and 9. On one hand, we might think of this as a life of uncertainty, but really, we need to understand if you don't know Christ, then you have a very certain expectation that your life will be wasted. There's nothing you can do to change that. But I want you to see that Psalm 46 is not a lament. It's not intended to be depressing. It's intended to be uplifting because it is written from the perspective of those people who have trusted in the Lord, who do know God and have His Spirit dwelling in them. These are God's people. They belong to Him and He dwells with them and they have confidence in Him because they know Him. Do you know Him? Do you want to know Him? Do you want to have the hope of His presence with you at all times to guard you and to keep you, to strengthen you and to help you? Then you must cry out to Him and ask Him for deliverance. Now I love here in verses 7 and 11 that He calls Him the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Jacob is a perfect example for us in this. As Jacob wasn't anybody... Uh, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't somebody that had it all together. Jacob wasn't a nice guy. Uh, he was manipulative. He was deceitful. He was selfish. And he was inconsiderate. There was nothing in Jacob that we would call good. He was really a despicable human being. But in spite of that, God loved Jacob. And God blessed Jacob. Until one day, all of Jacob's lies and his deceptions caught up with him. His life was like a house of cards. And somebody bumped the table and they all came crashing down. He found himself, his whole family, and all of his possessions, everything that he owned, facing an armed force of several hundred men, led by his brother Esau, who had sworn to kill him. And by the way, that was because of one of those lies that he was so skilled at telling. 
the night before he was to meet his brother, when he knew that he and his family would be killed, he met the Lord. Genesis 32 actually tells us that he wrestled with God all night long. And just as the sun was rising in the morning, Jacob, exhausted from his ordeal, clung desperately to the Lord and refused to let go. And I think this is a tremendous picture of how we have to come to God. Because you may think that you're a pretty good person. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's not even one that does good. And whether you realize it or not, your lies and your selfishness are like a house of cards crashing down around you. You're completely exposed. You're facing certain destruction. Condemnation, actually, because you broke God's law and God is a just judge. Your only hope is to cling to Him. Cling to Him desperately. Beg Him for mercy and kindness. Good news is that if we do, He'll forgive your sins and He'll cleanse you completely. The reason I know that is Jesus Christ died as your substitute to take away your sins. And he rose again from the dead to give you eternal life. And so if you trust him, he will send his spirit to live inside you. Then you'll know exactly what the psalmist is talking about firsthand. It won't just be words on a page, it won't just be a nice poem. It will be your own experience with God. God, your refuge and your strength, your very present help in trouble. So let me ask you, what do you think God is doing in the world today? When you look around, you see what's going on. I mean, don't, don't you see the things that are described here in Psalm 46? Don't we look around and see natural disasters? all around the world, and people destroyed, their lives destroyed, people ruined, families broken apart, all sorts of terrible things happened. Don't we see political unrest and upheaval all around us? You turn on the news and what you see is riots and, and, and fighting, and you see even in our country where we don't have massive riots, but you still see unrest, and you see some of those things taking place. In the last couple of years, we've seen some of these things happening in our own country more and more. We see wars, violence all around us. And many times people ask, where is God when this is happening, right? Where is God when this disaster is taking place? Where is God when war breaks out and thousands are sent into, as refugees? Well, it's interesting that according to Psalm 46 and verse 10... What God is doing is he is exalting himself in the earth. Look at verse 10. Be still. This is God speaking. If you look in the context here, this is God who is going to battle and doing war against the, the, the armies of men. And what does he say to them? Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. That's where I put the emphasis here because I think that's consistent. I will be exalted in the earth. 
This is God asserting his glory, his majesty, his divine right. Verse 10, out of all the verses in this psalm, is the only one where God is speaking. Speaking to the kingdoms and nations of this world. And saying, be still. And so I don't think that this verse is saying to to believers to just rest and be calm because God's got it under control. That's true and that's the psalm is definitely presenting that view. But what God is doing is he's speaking to the nations and he's saying cease and desist from your rebellion. In the midst of our human struggle for survival and for significance, God says to us, quit resisting and acknowledge that I am the Lord. The best comparison and example of this I can come up with is myself as a father. Because there are times that I have to deal with my children when they're being defiant and refusing to do what I've asked. And I sometimes want to say to them, stop resisting me. Just acknowledge that I am the parent and you are the child. Right? Just get with the program. This goes a lot easier if you'll just stop resisting me. But the more you resist, the more you assert your independence, the more I must assert my control. And if you're a parent, you know what that's like. And that's what we see God doing here in Psalm 46. He's saying, cease and desist. Be still. I am the Lord. I will be exalted. I will be exalted in the earth. You're going to acknowledge it. How hard it goes on you depends on you. Be still, God says. My children don't want to acknowledge my authority as a parent in the same way you and I so often refuse to acknowledge God's rightful authority over us. I only see this this goes two ways. It It goes one of two ways. Either we submit and we quit resisting and we just stop fighting back. And we Admit that God is Lord and He is exalted and high and lifted up and we humble ourselves and we obey. Or we continue to defy Him and ultimately we suffer defeat and destruction when He makes desolations in the earth. And that's the only way it goes, right? All men and all women will either admit that He is Lord and confess Him as Lord and and humble ourselves before Him or we'll be destroyed when He asserts Himself as Lord. And I think Philippians 2 tells us that very, very clearly. That every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. So will you cease from your striving and admit that he's God? 
Will you humble yourself before him and seek mercy and forgiveness? If you do, then you can repeat the same refrain from verses 7 and 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. 